Well, it's great to sing the gospel, isn't it? And um, those songs really, um, I think, prepared our hearts well to get back into the book of Romans, which is all about the gospel. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Just two verses today, but two very important verses that uh, we need to understand and apply to our lives. So if you uh, have a Bible with you, uh, please take it and uh, turn to Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Father, thank you that we can sing about the gospel, and now we can learn more about the gospel from this great letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand what... um, he meant when he inspired Paul to write these two verses and that your spirit would help us make application of them in our lives. Lord, for those that are not saved yet, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. For those of us who are saved, Lord, that this would be a great reminder of how grateful we should be for our salvation and how compelled we should be to go and tell others how they can know the joy of forgiveness for sin and the hope of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of the commentaries that uh, I've been using to help me study and teach through Romans include uh, verses 19 and 20 uh, with the previous verses that we looked at last time. And um, in fact, I think um, it's important just to refresh your memory because it's really Uh, all goes together. Uh, Remember back in verse 9, Paul said, what then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he begins to quote passages from the Old Testament to prove uh, how sinful man really is. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now again, most commentaries will just continue on um, with verses 19 and 20, but I felt like I wanted to preach a separate sermon on these two verses because they serve such a critical role uh, in the juncture of Paul's letter here. Uh, First of all, they serve as a conclusion to the first section of Paul's letter in which he proved that all men lack the righteousness that God requires to be in a right relationship with him. And therefore, every man is under God's condemnation. Well, not only are they a conclusion, but they also, at the same time, serve as an introduction 
to the next section where Paul is about to explain how a person is made right with God, how they're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Specifically, Paul is about to describe how God graciously grants his righteousness as a gift to sinful people who admit that they aren't good enough to be accepted by God or for God to accept them. And so they accept the work that Jesus did for them by living and dying on their behalf. And as a result, they're declared right or righteous before God. Now, if you still have that little roadmap for Romans that I encourage you to keep in the front of uh, Romans uh, to, to kind of refer back to from time to time, uh, you'll see here that, that uh, we are coming to the conclusion of this first main section called, we've just titled Condemnation and the Lack of Righteousness, which is really chapters one, chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20. And then we're moving into this new section um, on justification or the gift of righteousness, which is chapters uh, 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 5. And then we'll get into the section on sanctification. But in these first three chapters of, of Romans, Paul, I think, could be likened to a prosecuting attorney who had the unenviable task of presenting God's case against sinful mankind. And he put forth a, a litany of charges which, which all provide undeniable evidence that the entire human race is completely corrupted by sin and condemned by God. Or we could say it this way, that every person is helplessly dominated by sin and hopelessly doomed to hell. That's the verdict that Paul lays out here. Now, we know that what Paul said here uh, in these opening chapters contradicts the prevailing opinion of today's world that man by nature is basically bad? No, man by nature is naturally what? Good. And yet Romans teaches the exact opposite, that every part of every person is completely corrupted by sin. We are rotten to the core. And what's worse, there's nothing that you or I can do about it in and of ourselves, to change the way that we are. And if left to ourselves, we will end up paying the consequences of our sin in hell for all eternity. That's the bad news. That's what theologians refer to as total depravity. And I gave you a definition of, of that last time. Let me just remind you of what this term total depravity means. And this is drawn from... Uh, all of what the Bible teaches regarding our sin. But this is, I think, a, a, a simple definition or a, maybe a, a comprehensive definition of uh, total depravity. Based on Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, every human being has inherited a sinful nature and thereby, thereby is conceived in sin and birthed into this world spiritually dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God, and is an object of God's wrath, who is not just inclined to sin, but enslaved to sin, because every part of our being is infected or affected by sin. That includes our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our desires, our motives, and our wills, which means every human being is neither willing or able 
to change themselves. That's why total depravity is often referred to as total inability. What we need is an entirely new nature, which is made possible by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he brings dead, depraved sinners back to life, and he grants us repentance and faith so that we are willing and able to turn from our sin and to place our faith in what Jesus did through his life and death and resurrection and to rescue us from death and hell so we can spend eternity with God in heaven. And so we looked at last time, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, which is the most explicit description of total depravity found anywhere in the Bible. And Paul turned to the testimony of the, of the scriptures to substantiate his charges that men are universally sinful and totally sinful. Again, everyone and every part, every man and every part of man uh, is corrupted by sin. And uh, again, he followed the practice of the rabbis in his day uh, in, in doing what was called pearl stringing, where he strung together a series of Old Testament passages from Psalms, uh, from the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah. And uh, we said that he presented four indictments against us that proved that we we're totally corrupted by sin and worthy of God's wrath. Uh, we have wayward hearts, um, we have wicked mouths, we have warlike ways, and we have wrong views. In other words, sin has corrupted our character, sin has corrupted our conversation, sin has corrupted our conduct, and sin has corrupted our very core. And then we come to verses 19 and 20 today, which I think could be likened to Paul's final statement or verdict, if you will, after which God, the just judge, will appropriately declare guilty as charged, case closed. And the gavel comes down, and there's silence in the courtroom. There's nothing else that can be said or needs to be said. And I think the natural question that someone might ask at this point, in light of all that Paul has been talking about regarding our sin and, and the law, and, and why, don't we, why, why we don't keep the law, um, the Jews have the law written on two tablets, we have the law written on our hearts as Gentiles. What is the, what's the, what's the, the point of the law? If, if, if keeping the law doesn't save us, nor could it ever save us, why did God give it to us in the first place? In other words, what, what role does the law play in salvation? Or simply, what is the purpose of the law? And so in verses 19 and 20, Paul explained two purposes of the law in regards to our salvation. Uh, first of all, in verse 19, he shows us that the law makes us defenseless before God. The law makes us defenseless before God. And then secondly, in verse 20, he shows us how the law makes us dependent upon God's Son. The law makes us dependent on God's Son. And so uh, just a, a simple summary of these two verses would be this, and that is this, that the purpose of the law is to shut us up by showing us our sin in order to shove us into the arms of Jesus. That's what these two verses are all about. They're, they're there to shut us up 
by showing us our sin in order to shove us into the arms of Jesus. And so let's look at these two purposes for the law. First of all, the law makes us defenseless before God. Notice what he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, it appears that Paul may have been specifically referring to the Jews here and reminding them once again, because they seem to have needed multiple reminders that they were just as guilty and just as deserving of God's wrath as the Gentiles. In other words, a Jew could be listening to this and, and, and this uh, litany of charges in verses 10 through 18 and go, well, I'm sure glad that doesn't apply to me. And, and Paul is saying, no, just remember that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. This refers to you. They were just as deserving of God's wrath as the Gentiles. Some, someone suggested that the nation of Israel served as a sample of the human race that God used to prove the sinfulness of all mankind. In other words, he entrusted the Jews with the law to see if they would keep it and obey it, and of course they didn't. They were a test case and they failed the test. It'd be like um, trying to figure out if the whole you know, lake is polluted, let's go get a little test tube, let's dunk it in there, dip it in there and pull it out, and if, if, that, if whatever's in that test tube is polluted, then we can conclude that the entire lake is polluted as well. Well, all that may be true, I think based on what Paul said at the end of this verse about every mouth being closed and all the world becoming accountable to God... I think he was referring to, to all men here in that some, in, in some sense we are all under the law. The Jews are accountable to God based on the law he wrote on the two tablets and presented to them at Mount Sinai by Moses. But we as Gentiles, those who are not Jews, are accountable to God based on the law he wrote where? On our hearts and on our consciences. And that's what Paul made clear back in chapter 2, verse 14. He said, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Furthermore, based on what Paul said right before this, again in verses 10 through 18, um, I think God's law does not just refer to the Mosaic law, but it also refers to the entire Old Testament that he just quoted. Now, we know that whatever the law says, okay, this was what the law says in verses 10 through 18, it speaks to those who are under the law. I think his point is very simple here, that every mouth of every man whether Jew or Gentile, may be closed. In other words, no one can argue with God or try to defend themselves against the accusations that everyone is depraved and deserving of hell. I mean, there's no denying, there's no debating the fact that we are sinners who stand condemned before God. And yet there are those who insist on making excuses or 
that it's not their fault or they protest that they that they're doing their best and that they're better than most. I mean, if you only grew up in the dysfunctional family that I grew up in or, or you know, you, wouldn't, you would understand how I'm a victim and, and it's not my fault and I'm, hey, at least I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know. I've never done that or I've never done that. Those things maybe have never come out of your mouth, but they may have gone through your mind. And Paul says, no, we're all guilty as guilty could be. And there's nothing we can say or do about it. We should be like Job in Job 40 verse 4 when after uh, debating with his friends about why he was suffering and, and they all thought they knew the reasons why Job was suffering and even Job had a few ideas of his own and, and finally God shows up in the whirlwind and, and basically says, hey Job, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? And Job responds in Job 40, verse 4, he says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I just got to shut up. I got nothing to say. And so he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, we are all answerable to God. We will all stand before God someday and give an account or, 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 or have to give an answer for our lives. And we all stand guilty before him, and, and we should tremble at his coming wrath against our sin. It was Luther who said that God gave us the law not to justify, but to terrify. And this is a, a theme throughout both the Old and New Testament of this idea of standing before, the God, before God or not being able to stand before God is more like it. The psalmist, Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if you would keep track of our sins and, and judge us for our sins, well, who could stand before you? Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Malachi 3.2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? In other words, when the Lord returns, I mean, who can stand in his presence? In fact, in Revelation, which obviously is all about the return of Christ, in chapter 6, verse 16, when the, the judgments, the sealed judgments are being released, um, unleashed from heaven, uh, it, it says that the, the people will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They're just looking for a cave to hide in. They just want the, the cave to, to, to crash in around them and kill them so they don't have to deal with the wrath of God. It would be better to, to, to be crushed by these rocks than to be killed by the wrath of God. In fact, later on in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 8, when the final seal 
is opened, which gives way to the seven trumpets, which the, the seventh trumpet leads into the bowl judgments. And so you have this, this, this flurry of uh, this uh, 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 or series of God's judgments being unleashed on sinful mankind in this rapid succession right before Christ's return. And it says in Revelation 8.1, there was silence in heaven. There was this holy hush in heaven at the grim reality of the wrath of God being poured out upon mankind because of their sinfulness. And so Paul makes it clear here in verse 19 that that the purpose of the law was to make us defenseless before God. Secondly, the law is to was intended to make us dependent upon God's Son. To make us dependent upon God's Son. Notice verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does he mean by, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight? In other words, no one can make themselves pleasing or acceptable to God by trying to be a good person or by doing good works. Psalm 143, verse 2, for in your sight, no man living is righteous. A lot of nice people in here this morning, but as God looks down upon us, um... None of us are righteous in his eyes, in and of ourselves, apart from Christ. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6, we're familiar with this verse, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even man at his best is still not good enough. We're filthy in the eyes of God, again, apart from Christ. Well, we know that this concept that a person is not and cannot earn salvation by their own doing is a pervasive theme in Paul's writings. He states it here very clearly, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He says it again in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then turn over to Galatians. Just a few books to the right there. Galatians. In one verse alone, he says this three times, as if we, we, we were thick in the head and we needed to, be, uh, to make sure we didn't miss what he was saying. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. It's like, Paul, are you stuttering? What, what is the problem here? You know, I mean, he keeps saying it over and over again, repeating himself. He wants to make sure we don't miss that fact. That by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
In chapter 3, verse 2, he says it again. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 5, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. We're all very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through, what? Faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of, what? Works, so that no one may boast. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Back to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Again, we, we've become so familiar with this concept that we may not know that this is the first time that Paul used this phrase, the works of the law. And he used it a total of eight times, twice here in Romans, six times uh, in the book of Galatians there. We read that in chapter 2 and and chapter 3. And uh, for those of us that have been maybe raised in conservative evangelical churches and um, pretty much stick with listening to conservative evangelical preachers and reading conservative evangelical books, uh, may be completely unaware of the fact that in the past 40 years there's been this growing debate about what this simple phrase, the works of the law, really means. And whatever it means is very important because it holds the key to understanding not just the book of Romans, but Paul's entire theology. Pretty much the majority of the New Testament. And so we need to make sure that we understand, accurately understand, what did Paul mean by the works of the law, by which no flesh will be justified. Well, the traditional way this phrase has been understood is that Paul was referring to the Jews' works-based system of salvation. The Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day and the the Judaizers in Paul's day taught that a person could earn God's favor by living in obedience to the law that he had given to Israel. They had to be circumcised and observe the Sabbath and maintain the dietary laws along with all the other rules and regulations in order to be considered righteous in God's eyes. That's probably no surprise to you, nothing new. You haven't, just, you haven't heard anything new in the last couple things I just said. That's like, yeah, that's how I understand it. Well, this traditional view is being challenged by a growing group of, and I'll just say it, liberal scholars, professors, pastors who are convinced that's not what Paul meant by this phrase, the works of the law. 
And they would have us believe that based on their study of ancient extra-biblical writings, and that should tip us off right away, that rather than, uh, we didn't come to this conclusion by studying the Bible, we came to this conclusion by studying other books uh, that were written around the same time that the Bible was written, and we're going to impose what they said on the Bible. And so based on their study of, uh, of these ancient extra-biblical writings, they claim to shed new light on first-century Judaism, saying that Jews in the time of Jesus and Paul were not self-righteous legalists who thought they could earn salvation by their own meritorious work, which, by the way, I hope you already recognize that that directly contradicts what the Bible says. I mean, just... Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke 18, verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in, what, themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And he tells the story, of the, the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And of course, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house, what? Justified rather than the other. How about even here in the book of uh, Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul talking about his fellow Jews for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And what was Paul's testimony? As maybe the most well-known Pharisee of his day, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he said, I count all things that I had accomplished in my earlier years as a, as a Pharisee, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so while some would say, well, you know, what you thought the Pharisees were like and what they believed and what they taught, that, that, that really isn't true. We've misinterpreted what, what Paul meant by this whole idea of the works of the law. And so, so in their opinion, the, the traditional interpretation of the works of the law was, was read into Paul's teaching over the centuries by men like Augustine, the church father back in the early uh, days of the church, who was fighting against the heresy of Pelagianism. Pelagius was a false teacher who, who said that man was not completely corrupt. He, he wasn't totally depraved, uh, and therefore he could, by his own free will, choose to do good without God's help. And so Augustine was fighting against that, arguing against that, um, and that's how he interpreted uh, Paul's these works of the law that no man can be justified on his own apart from Christ. Uh, or, uh, as well, uh, this, this uh, works of the law was read into um, Paul's teaching by the introspection of the reformers, like Luther, 
who was struggling to earn his salvation in the midst of of the works-based system of salvation taught by the Catholic Church in medieval times. And they go as far as saying that the Reformed teaching of justification by faith alone is a misunderstanding of what Paul actually was teaching here. And I would imagine the only individual who's part of this movement, if if it could be called a movement, that you may have remotely heard of is a guy named N.T. Wright. He's a a British New Testament scholar, a a theologian. Uh, He's a retired Anglican bishop, but he's the most well-known and most influential proponent of what is being called or popularly referred to as the new perspective on Paul. Now, I'm curious, I asked our, our lay elders this morning how many of them had actually heard of this. I'm curious if any of you um, have ever heard of this new perspective on Paul. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious to see uh, who have. Okay, so just a handful, and that's what I assume. That um, I think the, the average believer sitting in the pew every Sunday rarely you know, uses commentaries or refers to theology textbooks, and so they're not always exposed to or, or familiar with dangerous movements like this that, that distort the meaning of Scripture. And, and so, again, the, the kind of popular book that, that um, people have read, if they know anything about this, is, is a book by N.T. Wright called What St. Paul Really Said. Well, that title alone should kind of scare you off, right? Well, wait a minute. Are you saying that Paul said something that, you know, that he didn't say here in the scriptures? And, and according to this new perspective on what Paul really said uh, here in Romans, Paul was not addressing good works in general, but specifically those cultural things that set the Jews apart from the Gentiles, like circumcision and Sabbath observance and dietary laws. In other words, Paul was confronting the Jews not for being a legalistic community, but for being an exclusive community. Not that they were trying to earn their way to heaven, but they were not allowing anyone else but Jews to be a part of the club. You see, as God's chosen people, the The Jews were placed in a covenant relationship with him, and by virtue of being included in the covenant, they took for granted that they would be saved. And so, consequently, they didn't believe that keeping the works of the law was the way to enter the covenant. They were already in the covenant, or even to stay in the covenant, but simply to show who was part of the covenant. Oh, you've been circumcised. Oh, you observe the Sabbath. Oh, uh, you you, uh, follow the dietary laws. Oh, so that is evidence that you're part of the the covenant. And so they proposed that Paul was simply saying that things like getting circumcised and observing the Sabbath and not eating certain foods were, 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 were not to serve as badges of salvation. That's what he was saying here. That's what they say he was saying. That's what he really said. Hey, stop using these ceremonial signs, if you will, or badges to to, to um, determine whether or not somebody's a Christian. In other words, he wasn't talking about the moral law. He was talking about the ceremonial law. In other words, Gentiles weren't excluded from the covenant community just because they didn't do these things. 
Salvation was no longer tied to being a Jew, but available to everyone. And again, you see how subtle this is, because there is some truth to what they're saying, but bottom line is justification by faith is not soteriological, but ecclesiological. In other words, it, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with the church and who's a part of the church. And again, this is a, a very subtle but significant paradigm shift in how we're to understand Paul's writings. It, it really promotes a totally different way of reading and interpreting the book of Romans. For example, the, the, the proponents of the new perspective on Paul say that the book is not primarily about how an individual is saved, but how Jews and Gentiles fit into God's plan of salvation. That that was Paul's main point. And if that's the case, then I got this wrong, all wrong. <laughs> this doesn't have to do with how a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. It's how, how God brought together the Jews and Gentiles, period. Well, if you remember, I did mention at the beginning of our series on Romans that the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in God's kingdom is an obvious sub-theme of this book. But Paul's main point is to provide a detailed explanation of the doctrine of salvation. And I hope you realize that Anytime someone claims to have a new, a new perspective on some biblical truth or pre pre uh, pre uh, presents some novel, original, trendy view of a passage or a, a verse, I mean, red flags, warning sirens, right, should be going off, warning you of danger. Because typically new ideas, new teachings, new perspectives are not new at all. They're just some old heresy repackaged in modern form. And so while you may have never even heard of this before and, and hopefully have zero desire whatsoever to wade into it just to try to figure it out, um, I felt like I had a responsibility just to warn you, to guard you, to protect you from um, this new perspective on Paul and this man who has often been called N.T. Wrong. Not N.T. Right, N.T. Wrong, right? Um, because this new perspective on Paul is not biblical. And it attempts to redefine and even deny the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, they attack justification and imputation. I mean, the very heart and soul of the gospel itself. And in the end, it assaults the gospel. And abandons the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I remember learning about this for the first time, and I couldn't help but think of how much it reminded me of the Jesus Seminar. Did you remember that? We, we've talked about that uh, from time to time. Uh, that happened several uh, years back. This group of, of scholars um, got together, uh, and they sat around a boardroom with the goal of deciding what Jesus actually said and what he didn't say. So they looked at the Gospels, they read through the Gospels together, and, and after any verse that was apparently attributed to Jesus, they would stop and take a vote. 
Do you guys think Jesus actually said that? Yeah, I think he actually said that. I don't think he actually said that. And they would take a vote and they would rate them, rate the verses on, yeah, he definitely said this. Well, he might have said this and he definitely didn't say this. And you can actually get a Jesus seminar study Bible where it's color-coded. The Gospels are color-coded. You thought a red-letter edition was enough, right? Where they highlight the words of Jesus in red. Well, they highlight them in red and pink and black and gray. So you can figure out, right? Well, did he really say this or he really didn't say this? Basically, what they were doing is editing the New Testament. Editing the words of Christ. And that's exactly what the new perspective on Paul is doing. They, 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 they were done, right, editing the words of Jesus. Well, the next one on the list was Paul. Well, now let's edit his words. It's what's called higher criticism, and it discredits God's word. If you are interested in brushing up on this, in case maybe you have been in conversations with somebody about it, and, or maybe everything I just said confused you more than it helped you, right? Um, there's a couple resources I would recommend. Uh, John Piper wrote a great book called The Future of Justification, A Response to N.T. Wright. And Piper was just saying, hey, I'm, very, I'm scared that if more and more evangelicals are accepting the writings of N.T. Wright, uh, we're, you can kiss the doctrine of justification goodbye. Um, Guy Waters wrote a book, Justification and the New Perspectives on Paul. That's a very helpful book. Um, and then there's a guy named Phil Johnson who um, is the one who edits all of John MacArthur's books. Um, he's kind of the, the, the one who takes all of his sermon manuscripts and massages them into, uh, into uh, prose. Uh, just a brilliant guy, a, a very discerning um, theologian, a, a, a brilliant, um, an articulate communicator. He, he's written a couple articles, um, What's Wrong with Right? Um, catchy title, right? And A Defense of the Old Perspective on Paul, <laughs> which let me just quote from that article because I thought it was very helpful. He said, according to Wright, Romans 3.20, that's, by the way, that's why we're talking about this because Romans 3.20 is where it all started, right? Romans 3.20 and other texts like this are not according to Wright, are not intended to deny that meritorious human works have any role whatsoever in justification. In other words, Paul's not talking about justification by faith alone. That's what Wright would have us believe. Wright is not explicitly arguing that a person's works do provide grounds for his righteous standing before God. He is merely arguing that the standard proof text against such a doctrine prove no such thing. In other words, this doesn't prove anything when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Are you serious? And so, Johnson concludes here, Wright stands against the reformers and on the Roman Catholic side of the justification debate. And he at least leaves the door open for human merit as part of the grounds for our final justification. He said, frankly, I am happy to stand with Augustine and Luther and the rest of the Protestant reformers and with the old perspective, Apostle Paul, against the likes of doctrine like this. So again, that was just a little rabbit trail for free this morning to just remind all of us to be wary, to be discerning, that there are those 
not just outside the church, but even those inside the church who play fast and loose with Scripture. And we need to be good Bereans, as Paul mentioned, right, in Acts chapter 17, who don't just accept everything we hear preached or that we read from a book, but that we go back to the Scriptures and make sure that's exactly what the Bible says. Amen? And so Paul says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in other words, if the law was not given to us to save us, if we can't be justified or made right with God by keeping the works of the law, then why was it given to us? Well, it was given to us, according to Paul here, to show us how sinful we are and how desperate we need to be saved. More specifically, that we need someone else to save us because we ain't doing such a good job. So the purpose of the law was to expose our sin. Look at Romans 7. Just flip over a few pages to the right. Romans chapter 7. Here Paul was was expressing his frustration with sin. And, and notice the role that the law played in this struggle. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covenant. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting the death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Simply stated, the only reason why Paul knew he was a sinner is because he read about it in the law. Do this. Oh, I, I didn't do that. Don't do that. Oh, I did that. I, I'm sinning. I'm breaking the law. I'm transgressing the commandments of God. And this may come as a, a shock to, to your ears, but God never intended us to keep the law. He gave it to us to show us that we couldn't keep it. In other words, by saying do this or don't do that, God was actually saying you can't do this and you can't not do that. And I'm going to prove it to you. And so our inability to keep the law makes it undeniably clear that we are sinners who deserve to be cursed and punished by God in hell, and therefore we are in desperate need of a Savior. And the only one who can save us is someone who has kept the law perfectly and, and no one except for Jesus has ever or will ever perfectly meet God's standards as laid out in the law and be acceptable to him based on their own merit. 
Typically, when we think about the law, we think about the Ten Commandments, right? We, we forget about all the dietary laws and, and the ceremonial laws. And we think, okay, I just, the Ten Commandments, that makes it simple for me. Listen, God gave us the Ten Commandments knowing full well that none of us would be ever, to, ever able to keep all of them. He wanted us to, to look to the only one who ever could and did keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. That was Jesus, right? And place our faith in him alone for our salvation, in his work, because our work failed. So ultimately, the law was designed to lead us to Christ, to show us our sin, to shove us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. You might remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and uh, he ran up to Jesus all excited, eager to find out what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? And... um, What did Jesus tell him? Talked about keeping the law. Matthew, this is Matthew 19, verse 16. Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He just kind of gives a summary of the Ten Commandments. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? He said, well, wait a minute, if the law doesn't save us, then why did Jesus tell the guy to keep the commandments? Well, he, he wasn't advocating obedience to the commandments as the way to be saved, but to show him that he needed to be saved because he hadn't kept the commandments and even then he was thinking he had. He was self-righteous and, and Jesus was wanting to lead him to forsake his self-righteousness and, and embrace the righteousness of Christ by faith. And that's what he desires of all of us to realize that, that none of us will ever be good enough to get to heaven on our own. We all need someone else to save us and that someone is Jesus, the ultimate law giver and law keeper. I think my favorite illustration of the role of the law in salvation is found in Pilgrim's Progress, that great analogy of the Christian life, and if you've read that, you'll remember one, one of the most uh, memorable scenes is when Christian uh, shows up at the interpreter's house, and he goes to, into different rooms, and, and he learns a, a different lesson, a spiritual truth, a biblical doctrine, and, and he goes into this one room that is just covered with dust, just dust everywhere, like an inch thick of dust, and so there's a broom and, 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 and a man comes and he tries to sweep up the dust. And as he's sweeping the dust, he's only making things worse. And then there's dust not just on the floor now, it's in the air, it's all over the place, it's on the walls, it's on the ceiling. And, and it's like, stop, stop making such a mess. And, and then someone comes in with a bucket of water and, and puts it on the dust and the dust all settles down and then he's able to sweep it up, right? 
You've done that, right? You, you, you've had a dusty thing. You put water on it. You can sweep it up. It makes it a whole lot easier. Well, Bunyan, John Bunyan, who wrote that, his point was simply this, that, that the dust represented sin. That we've all got sin in our lives. It's, and it's an inch thick or more, right? And, and what do we do? The law shows up and tries to fix our sin. And, and it's like the broom. And, and, and all the law does, it just stirs up sin even more and shows us our sin is all, not just on the floor, it's all over the place in our lives. What's the key? The gospel, the water of the word comes in, the gospel message comes in and knocks all the dust down. And so God gave us the law to drive us to Jesus and once we come to know Jesus and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, Jesus points us back to the law and says, now I want you to do this out of love for me. Not to earn your salvation, but because I've already earned it for you, but you just want to love and honor and obey me now. Bunyan said it this way, quote, the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin, and he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior. So in other words, before you can get saved, you need to know how lost you are. And and the only way you can know how lost you are is by being confronted with the law. That's why I appreciate ministries like the way of the master, Ray Comfort, I'm sure you've heard of his ministry, and he's an advocate of you, you have to preach the law. You have to show people the Ten Commandments and, and look, how does your life match up with the Ten Commandments? And listen, you've failed every one of these tests. You've broken all of these things. And that's where the, the gospel begins is by presenting the, the God, presenting the law and preparing people's hearts for the gospel. You've got to give them the bad news before you give them the good news. You have to start at Mount Sinai before you can get them to Mount Calvary. See, God's law acts like a plow that, that prepares the soil of a person's heart to receive the seed of the gospel. Or maybe a better analogy is it's like a mirror. The law is like a mirror which we were forced to look into and exposes the problems that we have, but you know what? The law can't fix them. A mirror can't fix the problem. A mirror can show you that your, your face is all dirty, but it can't wash your face. The mirror can show you that your hair is all messed up, but it can't comb your hair. In the same way, the law shows us how unrighteous we are, but it can't save us from our sin. That's where the gospel comes in, how, how we receive God's righteousness through faith in Christ. And that's precisely what Paul explained next. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. My question for you, as we conclude this first section of of Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, is, is, is this. Do you accept the divine 
diagnosis of your total depravity. Do you accept that? Are you sitting here this morning speechless? I got nothing to say. Guilty as charged. Case closed. See, it's only when we stand speechless as a guilty sinner before an angry God that we're ready to hear the glorious but now in verse 21 where Paul launched into the good news that that God graciously grants us as a gift his righteousness when we stop relying on our own Goodness to make us right with him and we just place our faith alone in the substitutionary sacrificial work of his son Jesus. Listen, don't be like that conceited, self-deceived emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's famous tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Remember that? It's a great story. Here was this emperor under the delusion that he was wearing some magical, invisible outfit that was actually non-existent. I, he, he was naked. And Paul was like that honest youngster in that story who exposed the fact that despite our imagined self-righteousness, that we are actually naked before God. And so what should we do? Well, Jesus himself gives us a piece of advice. In his message to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, he confronted this lukewarm church who said, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And he says, you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and what? Naked. And here's the advice. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye self to anoint your eyes that you may see. The Laodiceans were, were, were self-deceived. They thought they were right with God when they really weren't. And so Jesus invited them to come to him as the only one who could provide them with the righteousness that they desperately needed to be right with him. And those white garments there that Christ urged them to buy from him, I think are symbolic of his robe of righteousness that he offers to all those repent and believe and that robe of Christ's righteousness is the only way that our the nakedness of our sinfulness can be covered let's pray Father we're grateful for the clarity of your word and it really leaves us all without anything left to say but that's true That's me. And apart from Christ, I'm toast. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here who's still grappling with the delusion that they can somehow 
be good enough or do enough good things to merit heaven, to make you accept them or to make you pleased with them, that they would recognize that, that they will never be able to enter heaven without being covered, having their sin covered by the robe of Christ's righteousness that he secured, that he earned through his life and death in our place. So Lord, I pray that um, you would help us to go out of here, not now with mouths shut, but mouths open to want to tell others this good news of salvation and how they can um, know the truth of the gospel. So make us burdened and, and, and grant us boldness, we pray, to be your witnesses for Christ this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.